Father, you've given us these words from great heroes of the faith like King David um, so that we too can echo them and so that we too can use them to praise you and we can use them to learn and grow closer to you. And so we pray that during this time you would use the words that have just been read uh, to enlighten us, to illumine our hearts and illumine our lives as we seek to follow you more closely. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we are in the third week of a series that we are calling the Soundtrack Series. And last week, uh, if you remember, if you were here, we began by talking about movie soundtracks. And we said what a movie soundtrack does is it ties together what we're seeing on the screen uh, with our experience um, in our ears to help us experience the story a little bit better and a little bit more closely. And what we said about a soundtrack was that uh, a soundtrack... Oops, that was a lot. What is happening? I don't know what happened there. Sorry. Soundtrack is a musical element that helps bring together and emphasize a theme. Uh, and so when we watch a movie, the director puts in certain musical elements to help us experience it in a different way. Uh, when we play a video game, there's a soundtrack that goes with that. When we watch a TV show, and it helps bring the story to life. And that emphasis is what helps us um, bring the story, or helps bring the story to us as the creator of that story intended. But what's interesting is I think you can actually take this definition and apply it to other musical elements of our lives. And you can actually connect the idea of a soundtrack beyond just movies and media and TV shows. If we think about certain seasons or certain experiences that you and I have had, my guess is that we can identify a soundtrack of those times. That if we look back across our lives and we kind of put ourselves into the shoes of ourselves in a past time, we can think of the music and we can think of the lyrics and the words that helped define those times for us. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. My guess is you can probably remember a song or a couple of songs that helped define your best summer. So maybe that was a time back during high school or college, um, or maybe a time that you went on vacation with your kids, but you remember what that summer was like and what those experiences were, but you also probably remember the songs that you listened to. And when you hear them on the radio or you, or you hear them in another place, you immediately, in your mind, go back to that particular place. Actually, the, the song um, of my high school graduating class was the song, I Go Back, the country song um, from about 10, 15 years ago. And it's based around that idea that we can actually go back and we hear certain songs into the places where we experience them for the first time. You might remember the songs that you listened to or the things that you sang around your first date. Maybe with somebody um, that, that you dated uh, in the beginning or maybe even with your spouse. And you can remember what that was like. And you can remember probably the songs you sang around your first heartache and the first time you maybe got broken up with or the first time you lost a loved one. And those lyrics, maybe you remember your college experience and just the days of I was in a band or I played sports or we went to the beach all the time and the fun days, you know, of your early 20s. And so maybe if you were uh, somebody who fell in love, for instance, in the year 1975, you might think of the song Love Will Keep Us Together by Captain and Tennille. You know that song? Or if you were trying to be really cool in the year 1988, you might have been rocking a mullet with a single earring in this ear, blasting Faith by George Michael. 
Or if you grew up in the 90s and you were one of those 90s grunge rockers, uh, Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit might be your jam. Uh, or if you grew up in a Christian home, maybe Michael W. Smith and his songs were like the soundtrack of your adolescence. I remember still uh, being in ninth grade and listening to a song by Blink-182. Anybody know who Blink-182 is? Um, listening to a song by them on like repeat when I was in ninth grade because I had just gotten dumped by my first girlfriend and I was sad and it helped me express my angst. <laughs> but we associate these songs with specific times and specific challenges and specific successes and failures from our lives, and together these songs make up the soundtrack of our lives. And what we said last week was the fact that uh, our, sound, or our faith actually has a soundtrack. That there is a soundtrack to our faith. And if we look at the book of Psalms, what we find is that this ancient book of music actually provides different kinds of music for different seasons in our lives. And so we take these different prayers and hymns and songs that we find there, and together we bundle them up, and they are our soundtrack to faith. Um, one of those tracks that we find written is around the theme of petition. Now, when we say petition, a lot of times what we think of is signatures on a clipboard, Right, that I'm going to go around to you and I'm going to ask you to sign this petition. But that's not what we mean when we talk about petition when it comes to our prayer life or our relationship with God. If you get enough signatures, you're not going to change God's mind on certain things. But what we, what we mean when we say petition is just simply making a request known to God. Just simply asking for help from God for something. And this is one of the most common prayers that there is. It's one of the first ones that we learn how to pray. Um, we know how to ask for things. And even people that aren't strong believers, even people that aren't significant followers of Jesus have probably prayed some kind of petition prayer to God, asking God, please help me in this moment, help me with this thing, whatever it might be. And so we all know how to ask. Now, in order to, to kind of get us there, I want to look at a psalm of petition. What is really funny about this is that Ken and I both chose the same psalm. He chose it for lament, I chose it for petition, and it's Psalm 3. But what it demonstrates is that just like the songs that we listen to in our lives, um, different, the same song can mean different things in different seasons. And so the psalm that he pointed to for lament also has some ideas of uh, petition in it. And so the fact that, uh, you know, you listen to one song at one point in your life and it, you know, means one thing, you can listen to that same song 10 years later and all of a sudden it means something else, right? And the Psalms operate the same way. So Psalm 3 says this, it says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord. And this is the place where we get to the petition. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. For from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. And so as we move through this psalm, um, what we see is this kind of structure. So we see uh, this idea of, of lament and remembrance, and then finally we get into a place of request and confidence. And so as it starts, if I can go back real quick, 
He says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. And so he just defines his situation. He says, this is the situation I am in. I am opposed. People were coming after me. This is not looking good. But then he moves into this place of remembrance, where he says, in the past, you've done this for me. You're my shield. You lift my head high. You're the one who wakes me up in the morning. And in the past, when I've called out, you've answered to me. So he remembers who God is and what God has done for him. Then he moves into this space of request, where he says, Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw, which Terry doesn't like to read, um, and break the teeth of the wicked. But this is where he's calling on God to do something, and this is the petition element of this psalm. And he says, God, this is my situation, and this is what I know about you, but here's what I need you to do. Here's, here's where I need you to jump in and do something about it. And then finally, at the end, he closes with this statement of confidence. From the Lord comes deliverance. And so he knows in his heart that from God comes the deliverance that he seeks. Now, what's interesting about this is uh, I think in order to fully understand uh, what's happening here in Psalm 3, we have to look a little bit at the life of David. And I know Ken did that a couple weeks ago. Um, but we're going to take just a, a quick look at some biblical history here that will help us understand what is happening around David's life. I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with King David. He's one of the most famous figures in the Old Testament. But he was a very famous person in his own day and in his own right. So it started when he killed Goliath. I'm sure all of us have heard that story, David and Goliath. And so he started to build this reputation for himself. And eventually he's named king. And it's at the beginning of the book of 2 Samuel. And what David did was he reunited two kingdoms that were at war with each other and brought them together. He was a respected military leader and commander, and so he led the Israelite army to all kinds of victories against their enemies. And he was a big deal. He was riding high. He was a king. He was a successful conqueror. He was everything you wanted a king to be in those days. But then he enters this season of life where it all starts to fall apart. And we're about to get into some scandalous stuff, so be ready. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we get the story of David and Bathsheba, where David sees this woman, Bathsheba, and he thinks that she's pretty attractive. And so what he does is he calls for her and brings, him, or brings her to his palace. But the problem is, is that Bathsheba is the wife of one of King David's commanders and his armies, the, a guy by the name of Uriah. So David brings her to the palace, he sleeps with her, they conceive a child. And David realizes his mistake and what he's done, but he realizes also it's too late, and so what he does is he starts to try to cover it up. So he brings Uriah back from the battlefield knowing that when he comes home and sees his wife, uh, that they're going to be intimate. And so what he hopes is that people will think that the baby that's on its way is Uriah's and not David's. But then even to cover it up a little bit further, David takes Uriah and he sends him to the front lines of the battle, knowing that Uriah on the front lines in this dangerous, ugly, bloody war will probably get killed. And that's what happens. Uriah goes to the front line and he's killed. And then this baby that is born 
that he tried to cover up, that he tried to obscure, unfortunately doesn't make it out of infancy. And so we get this really tragic story, right, where, where David um, is, uh, is unfaithful, where he sins, where he tries to cover it up and sins even further, and then loses one of his children in this tragic way. And that's 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. But the very next story actually describes something that is equally painful and equally terrible. You see, David had eight wives. That's a lot of wives. And he had ten concubines. So he's got a lot of kids who were half-siblings. And there are two, one by the name of Ammon and a daughter named Tamar. And Ammon takes up uh, uh, an unhealthy... um, obsession with his sister, his half-sister Tamar, and actually claims to have fallen in love with her. And so what he does is he asks Tamar to sleep with him, and she refuses. But as Ammon lusts, lusts after her, when she says no, he actually forces himself on her and rapes her. And what happens is that Tamar's full-blooded brother, Absalom, sees this, knows that this happened, and what he does is he takes revenge on Ammon and kills Ammon. And so one of David's children, one of his sons, forces himself on one of David's daughters, who is then killed by David's other son. People thought the Bible was boring, right? This is, is crazy stuff. But then to go on, the very next chapter, what happens is Absalom uh, actually mounts a rebellion against his father. And he decides he wants to be king. And so he raises up an army and he goes and he actually forces David out of the capital. And David has to flee for his life. And so he runs away. And it's here that he writes Psalm 3. And so what he has seen is that David has had his own moral failure, he's lost multiple children, he's seen his kids act in just horrendous ways, and then try to overthrow him and kill him and take the throne, and he's out in exile, and this is the context for what he wrote. And what we learn from this is that in the midst of trouble, after his own stumbles, when it looked like things were hopeless, that's when David turns to God. In need. And what this does for us in Psalm 3 is it provides us an encouragement to do the same. That regardless of what we've experienced, regardless of what situation we are in, no matter what we've done or what has befallen us, we are encouraged by David's example to simply cry out to God. To bring our petitions and to bring our cares and our situations to Him and ask for God's intervention. And so God, or David turns to God and in petition in his time of needs. And so when we come upon difficult situations and things fall apart around us, I think a lot of us question whether or not we should go to God. Because we wonder, you know, does he listen? Will he care? Have I been too far away from him for too long for it to make a difference? But what we see as we go through scripture is that every person who has ever tried to follow God has reached out in petition and asked God for help. They've asked God for help in times of trouble and God has provided for their needs. And part of the story of petition is is that we're actually encouraged to petition by Jesus himself. So if you look at Matthew chapter 7, Uh, we see these words from Jesus, pretty famous passage. He says, ask and it will be given to you. 
Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks on the door, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And so David's psalm demonstrates that we can go to God in prayer, but Jesus' words here in Matthew 7 tell us why. They tell us that not only if we go to God will he listen, but he gives us the reason why we should turn these needs and these desires in God's direction. And it's all summed up in a single word that I think has tremendous implications for our petitions. We tend to skip over it. We tend to maybe even take it for granted, especially if you've been in the church for a long time, but it's the word father. That that the father invites us to ask him for these things. Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? See, when we think about being invited to something, the people or whoever makes the invitation is really important. So Lori just went on a cruise. And when Nelson came to Lori or Lori came to Nelson and said, hey, do you want to go on a cruise? I'm sure there was a really great conversation about that. And you were really excited because you know your spouse and you trust your spouse and you love your spouse and you want to spend time with them. But if Gary from accounting, who you've only talked to once, and frankly, who you find a little bit creepy, asks you to go on a cruise you're probably going to have some second thoughts about that, right? Because who makes the invitation is important. If your friends invite you to dinner, you'll probably go. If a group of known cannibals invite you to dinner, (laughs) you probably won't go. Um, As as Becky and I have gone through and planned our wedding, um, she went to this thing a few months ago where there are all of these vendors and all of these companies um, that bring everything together and they do, they do things from invitation, uh, invitations to cakes, to receptions, to wardrobes, everything you could possibly need for your wedding day. Um, and they all come to one place and they call this a wedding expo, which to all the men in the room sounds like the seventh circle of hell. <laughs> but she enjoyed it and I'm sure a lot of you other ladies have as well. So that's good. But while she was there, she put her name on a list And the company promised um, a free vacation. Now, she did it not because she's gullible, but she did it because she's cheap, uh, which is one of the things that I love about her. But it promised that if you sign up and you come to this short informational session, we will give you a free vacation to Florida, which sounds like a pretty good deal, right? But afterwards, we started, she and I started to do a little bit of research about this company, because usually when something sounds like it's too good to be true, it is. And so what we found was that the offer was real. It wasn't a total scam. But then in order to get you to Florida, they fly you on the cheapest airline, right? One where you buy pretty much standing room only. And they're like, oh, you want a seat? That's $20. If you want to pack a bag, that's $50. Oh, you want a seat belt? That's another $25. Those kinds of things. (laughs) And then they put you in the worst hotels in the off-season with restricted dates and on and on and on. And all of a sudden, this free vacation to Florida didn't sound so great. Why? Because the person that invites you matters. 
And then we realized that this company that extended the invitation was not a good one to go to Florida with. And so we have an invitation here in Matthew 7 to petition God, to ask, to seek, to knock. But that invitation completely hinges on this idea that God is a father. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And what he meant by that was that the image, um, the character, the characteristics that enter our mind when we think about God are going to shape our spirituality and are going to shape our relationship with him. And when it comes to this idea of God as father, a lot of us have one of two problems. Either our image of God that lives in our minds is not fatherly, or the image of God that lives in our minds is too fatherly. I'll explain what I mean by that. For some of us, we've never really seen God as father. We grew up in churches and traditions, and we maybe had parents or teachers that taught us that, either directly or indirectly, that God was far away, that God was mean, that God was more like a dictator than a parent, that he was out to get us, that he just couldn't wait to catch us in sin and punish us for it. And so God was a lot of things, but God was not a loving parent. The problem with this is that now it makes us extremely hesitant to go to him at any point, to petition or to confess or to go, go to him even when our lives are falling apart. Because you have this image of God that, that he just wants to get you and rub it in when it hurts the most. And so if you find yourself in a situation like David where life is falling apart, you're not going to go to him in that moment because you don't think that he wants to hear from you. And so you stay away. For others of you, you have thought of God as a father, and for you, that's a problem. Many of us, um, myself included, have had the, the blessing of having a great dad. People that we can rely on, people that we trust, um, someone that, that taught us and loved us and told us what was best for us. And so our image of God as a father, our image of God as a dad, is a healthy one. But for some of us in this room right now, our relationship with our dad did not look that way. And so we grew up with abusive fathers. We grew up with fathers that, that hurt us emotionally or physically. We grew up with fathers maybe who were absentees, who were just never around. Or even maybe some of us had fathers that were around, but they were emotionally or intellectually absent, that we just couldn't engage with them. Dads who never seemed to care, never seemed to listen. Dads maybe who were quick to deliver the swift hand of justice, but never able to offer the hand of peace. And so you hear Jesus talk about God as Father, and all of those image and all of that damage is conjured up in your mind, and so the last thing you want is God to be your Father. But what we need in both of those cases, I think, is to just reinform our vision of who God is, because Jesus reveals God the Father as one who provides, who listens, who cares, who invites us to share who loves us, who works for our benefit, who saves us, who delivers us, and who delights in us. Luke 12 says, Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and is tomorrow thrown in the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? It says, The Father knows what you need. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom of heaven. 
So this is not a God that's out to get us. This is not a God who's out to treat us badly, but a God who earnestly seeks relationship with us so that he can give us the kingdom. And so what we have to wrap our minds around is the fact that our earthly fathers do not define what it means to be a dad. Our heavenly father defines what it means to be a dad and that sometimes our earthly fathers fall short of that ideal. Jesus refers to God as father 189 times in the Gospels. And so the invitation to pray to God as a good father is absolutely fundamental to our understanding of prayer. In all things, but especially in petition. I'm running out of time, unfortunately, but there's one more point that I just want to make about this particular verse. And that's the, this idea of stones and bread and snakes and fish. That a lot of times when we petition God, we ask for bread and, and we feel like maybe sometimes we get stones. Or we ask for fish and we feel like sometimes we get snakes. But what's interesting is that if we think of God as our father, we, what we recognize and what we realize is that God sees things that we don't. Just as when you were a child, right, your parents saw things that you didn't. And so you asked for ice cream before dinner, but they didn't give it to you. Or you asked for a toy in Walmart, but they taught you delayed gratification. And you wanted to play in all kinds of places that you weren't allowed to play in, and they taught you social convention. Because they saw the bigger picture than what you see. I remember when I was like five, I think, I think it was 1992, for Christmas, I asked for the movie Batman Returns. And that movie's pretty dark if you've ever seen it. It's got uh, Michael Keaton as Batman and Danny DeVito as the Penguin. And so on Christmas morning, I saw that little VHS-shaped box under the Christmas tree, and I got excited. And so when it came time to open presents, I ran over and I tore it open. And what did I find but the Little Mermaid? <laughs> and I was devastated because what I wanted was Batman. But my parents knew that that movie was too dark. It was too violent. It was too much for me at five years old, and so they gave me The Little Mermaid. <laughs> God doesn't always answer right away, and he doesn't always answer in the ways that we would expect. But he sees the whole picture. He sees our lives playing out before us, and so he knows how to give us good things. And so a lot of times when we're asking for bread, we're actually asking for stones. And a lot of times when we're asking for fish, what we think are fish, we're actually asking for snakes. And God knows the difference between the two. Now, there are times when these prayers seemingly go unanswered and we don't get the answers that we want, and there are times that I admit that that is a challenge for me, too, um, when prayers, especially life and death prayers, healing and not healing prayers, safety and not safety prayers go unanswered, and I don't know why. And so this isn't a blanket statement that covers all of those questions that says when you didn't receive something that you thought was a good thing, it's just because you don't see the bigger picture. I think that's a cop-out. But I think this is definitely part of the picture that God sees more than we do. And the point here is that our confidence isn't that God will give us exactly what we want, but our confidence is in God himself. That not what we'll get for what we, what we ask for, but our confidence is in his character and his love and his plan for our lives. And so not knowing what we'll get, we still ask. I have to close up, but what I want to encourage us to do is to bring our requests to God. To know that he wants to hear us, that he longs to hear from us, that he delights to hear from us. And so my prayer for us is that we would show that same posture in our petitions. 
Um, that, that as we experience the different songs of life, the praises, the petitions, the laments, the thanksgiving, that we would allow God to be the one that writes that soundtrack and that we would recognize and lean in to him as our loving father who invites us to pray and to do so as children who trust him in all things. Let's pray. Father, we come to you um, now in petition, asking for you to show us your goodness, um, to allow those of us who don't trust you as father to lean into you and embrace you as father, to allow those who maybe haven't had a good experience with our fathers um, to, to have their minds changed and transformed to know what kind of good, good father you are. So Lord, allow us just to live into life as your children today, to enter your kingdom as infants, as toddlers, and just to grow in our saving and loving knowledge of you and your love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' great name today. Amen.